You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Angela Slatter is the author of Sourdough and Other Stories, The Bitterwood Bible and Other Recountings, The Tallow Wife. She's also the author of All the Murmuring Bones. Her new novel is The Path of the Thorns. Thank you for joining me, Angela. You're more than welcome, Rick. You know, Angela, your work is really intensely based in the world and idea, just the, the concept of fairy tales, a concept you use in a variety of uh, manners in your work. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk about just your first experience with a a fairy tale and how it caught you. Yeah, um, I think think it would probably have to be, you know, my my poor long-suffering mother, you know, gets caught into these stories because she was my big, you know, reader. She read to us all when we were little. but my, my sharpest memory is we were staying at a friend's house um, up in Cairns. We were looking to move um, cities and we were reading, mum was reading to me from a Hans Christian Andersen collection that belonged to the other little girl who lived there. And it was the, um, I'd had a couple of stories and, of course, greedy as always. I wanted one more and she mum promised just one more, just one more. And it was the little match girl. And, you know, as with all fairy tales, you get punished when you get what you wish for. And I just bawled my eyes out because it was so unfair and I couldn't I couldn't get my head around the fact that, you know, this, this poor girl had been abandoned on the street. Um, and I, I also did not think, even at that very young age, because I was, gosh, I was, I was probably about seven or eight, uh, I did not think that going to heaven was a reward. <laughs> so it was um, <laughs> quite traumatic and I still remember to this day just crying so much um, crying myself to sleep over that one and so interestingly enough when I first went um, was writing and I was looking for something to kind of you know latch onto that that kept my interest um, and one of my lecturers at university said why don't you when I was doing my master's why don't you try rewriting a fairy tale? See if you can, you know, work out what the backbone is and, and then what you'd like to, to add to it. And uh, and that was the story that I went to and I did. I rewrote The Little Match Girl literally on a cocktail napkin uh, while on a bus going home. So everything that, you know, eventually went into that. And that was, I think, my first published story um, picked up by Shimmer magazine back in the day. So, yeah. You know, um, you've gone to a lot of uh, world building. You started with that uh, uh, for readers who encountered your books, for your works first and books start with Sourdough, yeah. Bitterwood Bible, at which um, I guess in terms of the chronology, though Sourdough came out first, it follows the Bitterwood Bible in terms of your world's mm-hmm. chronology. Um how do you keep track of that? Is it just the written works or is there a... <laughs> <clears throat> uh, badly. Um, I, I, it's, it's, at the moment, it's just the written works, but I do need to uh, carve out some time and just sort of sit and work out a timeline. Uh, one of the things is that, you know, because it's a fairy tale world, the, the time can be a bit fluid. It can be a bit of a fugue. Um, <clears throat> and the way... You know, I, I had not intended Bitterwood to be a sequel that was written after Sourdough. It was just the um, the story that that stuck with me that I had to write was the Coffin Maker's Daughter, and that's about the character of Hepzibah Ballantyne, and she appears in Sourdough in one of the last stories just as a name on a headstone. Um, so I kind of, you know, I'm I'm, I'm busy writing this story and loving it, having a, having a ball with it. Um, and it won a British fantasy award, so it must have been okay. Um, and then I thought, okay, well, I want this as the first 
the first story in the new collection. And the other part of the brain said, oh, that could be a bit of a problem because uh, she's she's dead in the first one. So, <laughs> so I went, no, well, no, it's it's time to start writing uh, some of the pre the prehistory of the place. So that was that was kind of how that came about. But I'm um, I do need a, a better system, I think, of of checking timing and that kind of thing. Spreadsheet. So <laughs> <laughs> You know, one of the most notable aspects of your work, and it's really commendable, it's really enjoyable, is the determined feminism of everything you write. These are stories about women in which women hold most of the power. I mean, the men are, are at best, sturdy. <laughs> <laughs> There are some good ones. <laughs> they're, they're, they're pretty good. But I'd like you to talk about, you know, feminism is a kind of modern development, at least in our civilization. Talk about taking some of those ideas and applying them to a, a genre of writing that existed long before feminism did. Yeah, um, but I mean, I think, you know, our, our feminisms. Uh, because feminism means a different thing to different women, to Western women, to women of colour, uh, to trans women, all of those things. But it's it's basically about self-determination, uh, which is, you know, currently under quite a bit of attack at the moment, let's face it. Um, I think if you if you read through history, you see the there are moments where we did have a greater um, control over ourselves, there's a, a you know a record of a um, a trial in London from uh, I think about the 1500s. Uh, a woman was attacked by a man who was trying to rape her, and she bit his nose off. Uh, and the judge basically said, "Well, yeah, what did you expect, dude? You know, you you have no <laughs> you have no recourse in this. You know, just get a fake nose. Uh, it was the very least you just you you deserved." Um, and there are quite a few anthropology books that posit that, you know, that it was a matriarchy at one point, you know, that women were actually regarded with um, a lot more respect and a lot more freedom rather than just as, uh, well, you know, wombs on legs as we seem to be at the moment. Um, so I just sort of feel that the the fairy tales are also a really good vessel for uh, those stories um, because I'm, I'm trying to rework them in a way that uh, that honours what they were before Disney got to them and what the Grimm brothers got to them um, because with the Grimm's in particular, uh, when they, they wrote them down, the brothers, you know, went around Germany collecting stories from female tellers generally and writing them down. Uh, but the difference from the first volume that they did to about the seventh, I think, uh, was that the voice of women in the stories and female characters had been edited out. So good girls didn't speak very much. Uh, and that was how you got chosen. Keep your mouth shut, have, red, have golden hair, and you can become the princess. Uh, and the characters who spoke the most were bold young boys and the bad women, and the bad women were the ones that wanted things and told people they wanted things and uh, didn't keep their mouth shut. So I think in a lot of ways I'm trying to uh, channel that spirit that was there beforehand. One of the things that I like about your your novels is the way you use fairy tales. It's almost the way um, that Nabokov uses uh, footnotes, and Van, Jeff Vandermeer as well have, have used footnotes in a mm. similar way. You use the the fairy tales as kind of a, a, a means of a glossing what's the story uh, for, for telling, foreshadowing, you know, kept yeah. bringing stuff together. Talk about... Uh, structuring a longer story with the shorter stories embedded in it um yeah i mean i i 
I kind of like the idea of the the footnotes. I think they're interesting, but I, I would have to say that as I've gotten older and grumpier, um, I find it more uh, more of an interruption in my reading to have to go to a footnote or to an end note and that kind of thing. Um, uh, and I think Umberto Eco also used them in Foucault's Pendulum as well. Um, and I'm, I suppose maybe I'm becoming a, a lazier reader. I don't want to turn a page before I have to or, or something. But so my solution to that was that um, to embed the fairy tales actually in the text. So it's not an interruption. It's kind of a, it's a, another phase of the journey and you just keep going through there. Um, and they're, you know, they're, they're my own fairy tales because what I wanted to to do when I started doing full length work and it was same with all the memoring bones was for my characters to feel that the fairy tales that they've heard when they're growing up, they were the ones that I had written. So, you know, so that that whole accumulation of work that I've done, um, you know, from, from back with the first fairy tale or the first sourdough story, uh, which is, sourdough you know the the short story sourdough um that becomes a bit of a legend and a myth because that was also what I was working with in um sourdough and bitterwood and the tallow wife is that characters that you might see in the as a first person character in one story in another story they are a secondary character or they've passed into legend they've become myth and there there are stories about them that may or may not be true when they may be slightly skewed because I'm also really interested in how, how rumour and gossip move, uh, how stories change over time and how they change under different tellers as well because the, the fairy tale is so um, open to adaptation and every teller will tell it differently and give it a different flavor so that's the sort of thing that I was that I was aiming for as a writer you know yeah that that's true it's like there are almost like uh the old game telephone where the the version we the version of this the story we we read in uh, the path of thorns has been told and retold slightly differently every time and also What's interesting, too, is that when we read in The Path of Thorns, a story that came out of Sourdough or, or one of your other yeah. collections, when we read it now, it tells us more about the, as much about the character who's telling us that story as mm. it does within the story itself. Yeah, because they all, you know, they all carry a different bit of knowledge as well, you know, so um, and, and one of the the things that I've sort of carried through um, in the Bitterwood Bible, there's, there's the, one of the, some of the stories about the, um, the Citadel at Quen's Reach where the little sisters of, um, of St. Flarion, I think it was, is um, hold all the knowledge of the world. And they, they have all these books and they have witchcraft books and they have encyclopedias and they have storybooks and they have the books of little lives, which are just scraps that that wandering scribes have taken, you know, from their observations as they travel across the world. Um, and I, I, at one point, that was that was destroyed, and all the knowledge was um, distributed as it could, you know, sort of these sisters fleeing uh, the the citadel in one night and taking the books with them, so some of it would be preserved. So that's something that I try and, and have, you know, um, trickling down through all the other books. So in The Path of Thorns, even there, you have the, the character of Leonora Morwood and Asher Todd. Their first conversation is about a fairy tale and their first conversation is also about um, the, the fleeing sisters of the Citadel and did any of these books come from there and are you descended from the, these women kind of thing. Um, so it's, it's just that idea that a tale will survive and it will survive, not necessarily intact, but that's not necessarily what it needs to be. Uh, yeah. And so they, they move, they move through time. Asher Todd is such a great <coughs> character. And this brings me to one of the, one of the wonderful points of your book 
is your writing, your prose is very wonderful. It's not overly studied. It's not overly studied with, you know, descriptions, mm -hmm. but it seems poetic and it's very readable. So when we meet Asher Todd and, and the, the Path of Thorns is narrated by her in the first person, I mean, she can just talk about anything and it's really <laughs> captivating. So, <laughs> and at the beginning of the book, she comes, she, it's her first day as a governess at Moorwood Grange. And so, and that brought to mind, to me, you know, the, the it, Henry James' turn of the screw. So, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talk about you know creating a character and just immersing her so much in the present, and this is true. I think of all of us, we live every day in the present, and we're busy doing this, busy doing that, and trying to get through that. And no matter how important our past is to who we are or where we are in the present, mm. we don't think about the past yeah. very much. And I think that's an important aspect of Asher's character. Yeah. Um, and she was, it, it's actually interesting that you mentioned Turn of the Screw because it's its probably not one of the stories that I thought about when I was writing, but it's definitely there. It definitely has those elements in there. Um, because I've, I've always described this book as, you know, what if Jane Eyre met Frankenstein, um, although Asher is, probably a lot less Jane Eyre and a bit more Lucy Snow from Bronte's Villette, which is a lesser known novel, but is actually one of my favourites. Um, but, you know, the thing with Asher is that she carries the weight of this huge past with her. Um, and I also wanted to very specifically make her a bit older so she's not um, like Mirren in All the Men Bones, who's 18 and, and is sort of, more your traditional gothic heroine in that she's very young and doesn't know much of the world apart from what she's learned in the fairy tale books. Um, and she's she's running away from a big house, one big house to another big house. Whereas Asher is coming very purposefully towards Moorwood Grange with her own agenda. Um, so she's she doesn't know everything. She knows a bit of stuff uh, and she's... She's still afraid of what she has to do, um, but she's she's. I always think she's got a really steady hand and a very steady mind. So she'll think back to what she's learned, what she's been through, and how can I apply it to this situation? Um, which is it, probably that's one of those things that comes straight from me as a, a person and how I manage life. Um, but yeah, but you you just sort of have to know where you're going to let that information out and share it with the reader and hope you put it in the, in the right place. Um, and I've, because I also, for my sins, I, I teach creative writing and have been trying to get so many of my students to just stop writing flashbacks because you don't always need a flashback, but it seems to be what they're reaching for in, oh, I don't know how to tell this bit of the story. I know, a flashback. So it's so I am. Um, I'm hoping I did it right in this book. <laughs> you, you know the way you did it, and the way I'd say the first third or half of the book almost is written, is it reminded me not so much of fantasy, but of Donald E. Westlake, <laughs> uh, like a yeah. mystery story. Because yep, yep. what's driving her? As when we finally find out what's driving her, it's a classic kind of uh, mystery trope in in a sense mm. and i think you you handle that very well to transplant that the feel of the mystery trope into the fantasy world it fits perfectly there's there's a lot that is you know just naturally dovetails and and again you know i always sort of say to students even if you don't like crime read crime you might be writing science fiction but read crime because you will learn how to plot um you will learn how to manage mysteries and you'll learn how to not throw everything on page one. So why would the reader hang around? There is there is nothing they want to know, you know. Uh, learn how to, to put down that trail of breadcrumbs. And I think I think that's, yeah, I think I've done a, 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 a good job of that with this book, you know. So all of my 
all of my crime reading, all of my mystery reading in my teens, and I still do it, has paid off um, because you want the reader to keep going um, and but, but also dropping those little hints as to um, the fact that Asher is not there as a traditional governess. She's not just there to teach, you know, these, these three children. Um, even from the, you know, there's a line in Chapter 1 which is just her saying, courage, Asher, you know, there's no one else to have it for you. Um, so I think that's actually a good hook um, to pull the reader through going, oh, hang on, you know, she's surely she's not just nervous about her first day of work. Now, uh, you create a wonderful uh, gallery and a pretty big cast of characters, but they're all memorable and easy to sort out. Uh, talk about that, introducing the characters. One of the main characters is Leonore, and she's super memorable, but she doesn't appear till you know, fairly far into the book. Mm. And, and I thought that was an interesting decision. Um, yeah, I think... What it was was that I wanted to establish everything else and everyone, you know, everyone else in the family before I got to her because also, as you say, she's memorable. She's also uh, a really powerful character um, and when she's on, on, you know, on screen, so to speak, on the page, um, she tends to dominate. So when... You've got Leonora on the screen, and if it's just her and Asha, <clears throat> Asha, she doesn't actually work hard to hold her own, but she reveals more of who she is. And it's like, yeah, I can take you on, Leonora. I, you know, we can we can share this stage kind of thing. Um, but I didn't want to introduce Leonora too soon for the simple reason she she holds she holds the page. So also whenever you, you know, whenever you have her in uh, a scene with more than one character and it's not just Asha but you've got um, Luther or you've got Jessamine or someone else around, um, Leonora is telling people what to do. So I kind of wanted to hold her back because she's almost the way you you hide a monster for a while, you know. So she's... (laughs) And then when she comes out, you know, it's a reveal of who she is and what she's like, and you sort of go, wow, okay, was not expecting that. <laughs> now, uh, there's a, a town nearby, uh, the, the Tarn, mm. and you you create that town really well. It lives by, so well, in fact, that as a reader, I would be interested in reading more stories about those characters, about that town. Talk about going to the trouble of creating something as complex as that, but kind of keeping it, you know, at a second level so that it doesn't rise so far as to interfere with the main story. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, again, that's, that's sort of how different your first draft is to your second draft kind of thing. Because when <laughs> I, um, you know, and, 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 and then your final published draft, when I first... Uh, when I first was was writing the draft, the first draft at uh, Morwood Tarn, the Tarn was just kind of off to the side and it was basically, you know, stick figures outside of, you know, um, kindergarten drawings of houses um, because I thought, oh, no, it's a little place and it's a remote village and blah, blah, blah. And then the more I started to think about it, it, it needed to be self-sufficient. It needed to be do every. You know, if I wanted it really to be properly self-contained, it shouldn't be such a small place that it had to get other stuff always brought in from outside and, and that kind of thing. So in some ways it's it's a sort of a crossroads town. Uh, people pass through it, but it's it's self-sufficient. So in order to do that, you have, you have um, you know, a lawyer to take care of uh, contracts and doing wills and things like that. You're, you know, people need to be fed. So you have bakers and you have butchers. Then you also need farmers because the farmers have to produce the food that, you know, goes along to people. So there's there's going to be children there, uh, you know, so there's going to be a school. So it, it built up naturally 
um, as it went. There's the inn, which, you know, is is kind of my version of a, a sort of a Jamaica inn where, you know, occasionally bad things happen or nefarious things are allowed to occur there, you know. So um, so it, it needed to be somewhere that when Asha walked through there to go and do her business and meet people and, and find the things she needed, it didn't feel like an old 1980s Doctor Who set you know so it was so wobbly that whenever she moved past the, the breeze <laughs> made it shake <laughs> so so and the other thing is that you know the, the characters when I when I get them when I know them in my in my head I I also really love them um so Zaria Tavarell the the solicitor in town she's wonderful I would I would have her in another in another story um Lunard's awful sister's in in the running the tavern you know um there <laughs> there this this kind of nasty uh trinity that i think you know sits in in contrast to another female trinity in the in the um in the story uh that i really enjoy but it you know it's it's that agglomeration of of story towns that I've read over the years and and villages that I've seen you know while traveling through the UK and Europe it's all those sort of little places um that need to be and the, the characters need to feel real even if they're they're a one or two line um you need the reader to feel that that is oh yeah this is a person who's been here having a life until you know doing stuff and will continue doing stuff when I leave this book rather than, oh, this is someone who's just appeared on the page because someone needed to point me to the bakery, um, you know. So it's that's a bit of a challenge as well is having those characters, having making sure they live on the page as much as they live in my head. One of the things that's most important with this is the way you reveal the, you kind of, start out with what I would call herb craft and, and that kind of upgrades into this slight science and then eventually magic. And yeah. the herb craft is really just seems like absolutely 100% real. How much of it is real, if any, or is it, <laughs> is it all made up or is it partially made up? Um, I have a copy of Nicholas Culpepper's, um, you know, herbal, his medicine book that was, you know, from the, the 1600s, I think, and uh, and several other herb books and magic herb books and that kind of thing, and I refer to it. So uh, just about everything that, you know, I mention uh, in there doing what it does, that's that's they do what it does. The only thing that's made up are the, the blood bells, the red flowers that are in the um, uh, in the cemetery uh, by the church, but everything else, you know, I, and I do, I, I use lavender in a lot of my stories because it's it's got healing properties, but also in terms of um, you know uh, law folklore, they say it um, uh, it calms uh, uncalm spirits. So in Sourdough, I have, you know, I talk about the big cemetery in Lodellin, which is uh, divided into where we're burying people at the moment and what's laying fallow, which are the old graves that they, um, they put, they, they plant lavender over the top of. So the old graves are all having a rest with lavender over the top to keep the spirits um, content. <laughs> <laughs> Now, uh, I think one of the most, there are some really stunning, I guess, kind of set pieces. And one of them is a retelling of a very familiar fairy tale, which I, I don't want to reveal because when you come upon it and experience it, it's just like truly gobsmacking. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I think the... Also, what you do then in this book is you give us a kind of a nice rural feel. There's kids, there's this light magic, and what starts to creep in is really bloody terror. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. 
but it comes in, in in bits and pieces, and then when it finally surfaces, it's it's fairly shocking. So talk about the the you know attempting to and in my case at least succeeding in shocking the heck out of your <laughs> readers. Yeah. Um. It's it's that whole thing of of foreshadowing and and putting the seeds in early on, uh, little little less shocking, you know, less disturbing things, but nevertheless, um, probably what I call small strangenesses, you know, that you just sort of put put through the uh, the manuscript. Um, Things like you know the 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 starting fairy tale of the the wolf's wife you know what what happens if a woman's you know looking for a more faithful husband you know to look for a wolf um, as a husband um, you know and you and you 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 gradually escalate the things that are coming out and the ideas that are coming out and so haunts you know the the small strangeness become larger haunts um terrifying experiences for asha there there's more of a threat to her as well in the house you know so you're increasing pressure everywhere um so for a while her plan seems to be going well but then other people have ideas that all start to apply more pressure more pressure to her so at the point that she gets to where she sort of thinks maybe I don't want to go through with this um there's this whole pressure of the dam behind her pushing her forward uh and she's got to try and work out um what she does and how she does it and whether she can live with it and I think that's that's probably um yeah, that's probably the sort of thing you're referring to. Um, and I, uh, yeah, and those, those that particular scene was rewritten many times because it was, it was actually a lot worse. It was a lot bloodier. It was a lot messier. Uh, it was, it was more Frankenstein-y. Um, but then I sort of, you know, I, I realised that I had actually already created an entire world and system of magic that, uh, that, could serve me as I needed it to. Um, so as as shocking as that is, it's it's crafted a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> hopefully it works. <laughs> you know, one of the things too is that as in a classic noir story, we're introduced to a character mm-hmm. and given enough of a handle on this character that we really like them and think this is kind this is a really good person. And then, as in it happens in a classic noir story, <laughs> that good person proves to be just a little bit more twisted than we expected. And so talk about, and you're good at this, the the gray heroine who who is, by the end of the book, you're thinking, well, heroines may be a bit, bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, she's unapologetic and uh, Asha is there to do something which is based on a promise that she made um, and the person she made the promise to is someone who had such a strong hold on her um, for a very long time so that, you know, she, but Asha has also reached, I think, the age where she's she's just trying to break free uh and so there's she can see freedom she can see the end of this this life this influence so she i think she's very much um whatever i gotta do to get the hell out of dodge i'm gonna do um and it's very pragmatic um and it's not necessarily very moral um but you, I, th- I think by the time you get to that point, you un- you understand, uh, and I think I think it's really, it's one of my favourite things in in stories to see the point where the main character, however you have set them up, um, has to make a choice, and what they 
do. So, you know, you, you talk about the anti-hero who starts out bad and does a good thing and then you're in the grey the grey heroine now, I guess, you know, who who has good points but also is doing something terrible because um, I don't think, you know, people aren't all good um, and I don't think they're all bad but there's a lot, you know, between birth and death that influences us and changes us and um, Asher is one of those characters. So I, I kind of do want the reader to be reading that with that you know, sort of almost like, oh, I'm speeding towards something and I can't quite watch. And so I've got one eye open and one eye closed. <laughs> you know, one of the things, too, that's really interesting <clears throat> in this novel is here in the States, we're in the midst of a giant to-do has to do with the repeal of a law. And, yeah. and, and this is it's got everybody's knickers in a twist and, and with good reason. Yep. You write about exactly what the core of the problem, and, and I think you do a fantastic job of taking this, you know, into a medieval time where, you know, the circumstances are much grimmer, but not a lot more grimmer. Mm. And, and I think you show the moral complexity of what's going on. So, and the scene is, is fairly, it's also extremely scarifying and and it's a, a kind of a <clears throat> i guess it, it, it's a place where characters take you know get flipped a bit and i think you do a really good job of, of doing that without like uh as mad magazine would put it wearing your sausage on your sleeve so to speak <laughs> I um and I know I know the scene you mean. Um, yeah, because one of those characters was originally going to to be killed, and I ended up. I sort of thought, oh, I, I actually, no, I can't, I can't do it. It's it's not right. It's not the right beat, you know. Um, uh, one of the things that I'm I'm interested in is the people we meet in life that we might not start out liking, they might irritate us, but for, for some reason they're constantly in our orbit and we end up with more of an understanding of them, we end up with some empathy for them and, and sometimes friendships are born. So, you know, that particular situation you're talking about, that's, you know, two women who definitely don't like each other, um, but... There's a lot of compassion in that scene, I think, and that rendering aid. It's someone I don't like, but I would not have anyone suffer this, you know, no matter who they are. Uh, and I think that really comes through there and it's it's kind of a bond that's born from that rendering help, rendering aid uh, where it's needed, even to someone that you don't like, Um uh, so I, I kind of have in the back of my head that at some point there might be, you know, these characters again, there might be like a road movie sort of a novel with them. <laughs> with them. <laughs> either starting trouble or finishing trouble. I'm not quite sure. It could go either way with them. So, <laughs> uh, Thelma and Louise with a horse cart. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Probably a bit more ruthless. So, <laughs> uh, Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, you, you know, you do a really great job with the supernatural. There are lots of kind of monsters and characters that, you know, are, are monstrific. And I think one of the things you do best, and you, you do, you did this in the murmuring bones with the, the character of a, a Selkie or it's not, not the, the, Kel the, the Kelpie. Kelpie. Yes. Yep. Yes. Where <clears throat> you take something that could just be, you know, uh, essentially a brief, but, vivid special effect and give it real character and all of your critters in this book no matter where they come once they come from or what they are when we first see them have real character so talk about creating monsters that are also real characters that's so important to me and nobody yeah. does it often enough or as well as you <laughs> thank you um well 
I just sort of, you know, we we have the idea of monster. We have the idea of what a monster is and that it's a it's a danger to us. And and sometimes, yeah, they are, you know, they are a physical danger. But I think I, I learned this as a, a reader before I learned it as a writer. Um, you, you know, Dracula, worst monster ever kind of thing has a backstory he's got he's got pain he's got things that happen it doesn't excuse what he does now but there is a humanity there and he was human once um uh oh gosh what was the other one uh, well, i Frank, had a thought and it died of died Frank, of loneliness yeah frankenstein's, frankenstein's monster. monster exactly is is yeah when you think of it as you know a guy who's kind of big and mean but there's a lot of character when you read the book yeah yeah, exactly, you know, um, and that uh, the sort of treatment people get, you know, will change how they act and react and that sort of thing. And as you know, I'm a huge fan of Hellboy, um, Mike Mignola's, you know, graphic novels, and there's a lot in that character uh, with, you know, he's, he's a demon out of hell, but he's been brought up very kindly by a very accepting man Trevor Broom you know his his stepfather his foster father um and also he's been given pancakes so he for the you know for the most part he identifies as a, a man a good man uh and and you know generally resists the call of the demonic uh so you know there's that aspect of choice and how we're treated um uh, you know, and and as you say, the Kelpie in all the Mirroring Bones, um, <clears throat> Mirren knows the rules because of the fairy tales and the, the folk tales she's been told. And she also knows to be polite. <clears throat> so being polite to the monster is a really good start rather than grabbing your torch and pitchfork or running away screaming, you know, because that's what they expect. Uh but politeness gets, you know, gets you places. And I think you see that a lot in fairy tales. Uh, there are always, you know, these old women who warn you, you know, be polite. Be polite to the monster. Be polite to the wolves. Be polite. You know, don't, um, don't, uh, don't be rude. Um, you know, give them consideration and respect and they'll give it back to you. Uh so I think that's a big thing that comes through with me is that, you know, I want my monsters. Some of my monsters are, yeah, just genuinely awful and terrible. Um, some of my greatest monsters are entirely human. Um, so, you know, it just I want things to look a little bit different. So even if, even if readers aren't aware of it, they're starting to think a bit differently about other, you know, people. You know, one of the things that, that I really like about your stuff is that on one hand, all the worlds and stories build on one another. Each one is formed by all of the others. Yet any single one you can read by yourself and derive, they're almost the same satisfaction. They're, so talk about creating this world that's, in you know, so much fantasy is written where... You know, it, it's a twelve book trilogy. If you are, t- <laughs> yeah, yes, I mean yes, that. yeah, a twelve book trilogy. Yes, exactly. And, and if you try, you cannot. If you read the twelve book, you're just going, "What the hell is all this stuff? Why are these people doing?" <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, maybe if I get to book twelve in this series, you'll you'll have the same experience because it's, um, yeah, it's a huge task and it's a real task to keep track of it. Um, but, I mean, the big thing for me is the the characters. The world is there and the world is one that's well thought out and I enjoy interacting with, but the characters are always the, the thing that carry the story. Um, and I love having these little touch points on the older stories, you know, the older tales as well that I've already told. Um, <clears throat> in, in The Path of Thorns, there's a line where, uh, you know, they they refer to Mirren's family, the O'Malley's, but, you know, someone says, but they're all gone now. So, you know, even though it's, it's um, I, I think in terms of timeline, they're probably occurring quite, you know, the stories are occurring around about the same time, 
but the O'Malley's have disappeared from view because Mirren ran away. So, you know, there's enough of a tale there that that has kind of travelled um, <clears throat> across to other people in this remote village. Um, and to that uh, end, I have to ask that there's uh, one point in this story where they, they're talking about breakwater, which is... Uh, at the time, I think yes. the Tower Wife and also uh, all the marine bones, bones yeah. and they, they mentioned that the the Queen of Thieves is gone. I, yes, I missed that. <laughs> Are you going to ever t- <laughs> to show us that part of the story? Um, well, no, because that actually occurs in the Tallow Wife. Um, uh, the end of the Tallow Wife, one of the last stories. Um, and a young husband to bury me. That's mm-hmm. that's where you sort of have the the story of what happens to Bethany Lawrence. Oh right. Um, yeah. So that's that's kind of it. So you know she she has this brief empire that she's built up. You know the the city of thieves, the the queen of thieves, and she kind of features as an as an overarching villain in um, all the murmuring bones. And uh, and then she has this this ending that's you know fairly probably gentler than she deserved for everything <laughs> she did. Um, so yeah, so that's that's kind of one of those little things that you know um, snake their way through. Um, and the uh, the novella um, that's that's just out from PS and Absinthe, the Bone Lantern. Um, is 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 also you know that sort of it's probably set at the at the end of the Tallow Wife period, just a bit further on from there, and you've got the character of Selka who sort of you know walked out of the pages of the Tallow Wife and and has gone on into the Bone Land, and I think she'll keep sort of haunting this world for for a while yet. Um, so there's there's kind of a, a lot of things happening in this this fictional world around about this time. Have you started a new novel yet? <clears throat> I have. <laughs> I, so is it definitely a novel, or do you know in advance what what length they're going to top out? Yeah, it's definitely a novel. Uh, it is called The Briar Book of the Dead. Um, so in uh, the town of Silverton. Um, which is a mountain town. Uh, they uh, there's a family called the Briars, and they are witches, and they're basically um, they exist. They are acknowledged witches, acknowledged witches, and they have a dispensation from several hundred years ago from the church in Lodellin saying that they are allowed to be witches, so they shouldn't be burned. Uh, and there is a reason for this. There's, there's good reasons for this. Uh, but we sort of meet them the day of the Balefire Festival, which is when they burn a, a, an effigy, which they call the woodwife or the tree witch. Um, and the idea is that it will keep it'll keep the town safe over the winter tide. But the secondary use of this is that um, uh, the the witches also have their own ceremony and they they chant that you know she will burn so we do not. Um, so the idea is also to keep them safe as well from other things. Um, and you meet the character of Ellie Briar, who is the only witch in the family with no powers. Um, so her fate is to be an administrator. Huzzah! It's it's an absolute punishment. Um, and. <laughs> The, their grandmother Gisela is the Briar Witch, so you know they run the town. They look after it. They look after its people. Uh, and her cousin Audra is going to be the next Briar Witch because she's very powerful. Um, but Ellie wants something different in life. She doesn't just want to be, you know, the organizer or or, or Audra's, you know, sort of maitre d. Um, and something goes wrong with the Balefire Festival and it's the first one that Ellie has organised. And the problem is that when something goes wrong with that, uh, you might end up burning an actual witch to make the sacrifice to keep everyone safe. So Ellie's got a ticking clock on her to find out what went wrong. Um, 
so yeah, that's kind of what that one's about. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds de delightful. <laughs> um, you also wrote uh, some contemporary stories through uh, Corpse Light, and I'm wondering if you are going to return to those ever. Uh, I I don't know. I I have I have notes for a fourth one. I did the the trilogy with Verity Fassbinder in it, and that was Vigil, Corpse Light, and Restoration. Um, yeah, I don't know. I have notes, but I don't. I really don't know. So it would very much depend on uh, timing and if someone wanted to publish them, um, and if I you know run out of sourdough stories. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, it does not seem possible that you're going to run out of sourdough stories. The way you built the world, it seems like there's always something new for you to explore. I hope so. So, yeah, so after the Briar Book of the Dead, I've, uh, I have another one called The Crimson Road, and that looks at the early story of the twin assassins, uh, Orla and Fidelma Mayrick, who run St. Dimpton's School for Poison Girls. Uh, in Bitterwood and um, oh that sounds wonderful yeah, <laughs> that that story was amazing uh, yeah it's the, the the academy for young women who have to go off and be uh, assassin brides kind of thing so um, getting you know all these all these girls from rich families who have uh, access to grind uh, long you know long-standing resentments against other important families so what they do is marry one of their daughters into that family and she may she may take years to take revenge or she might you know stab the bridegroom at the wedding ceremony you know it just depends on uh, on <laughs> the level of patience these young women have but um yeah but i i wanted to tell you know some of the the story of the mayricks when they were young and uh you know being raised by a father who was a general uh, when they also had a grandfather who was desperately trying to to get rid of them from the world. So, yes, so that'll be the next one. Wow, that sounds great. I've been speaking with Angela Slatter. Her latest novel is The Path of Thorns, a title which you will not forget by virtue of what it proves to mean. Thank you for joining me, Angela. You are welcome. Thank you for having me, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.